Book Two, Chapter One, Part Two of *The Beautiful and Damned* by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Breath of the Cave. Back in his apartment after the bridal dinner, Anthony snapped out his lights and, feeling impersonal and fragile as a piece of china waiting on a serving table, got into bed. It was a warm night. A sheet was enough for comfort and through his wide-open windows came sound, evanescent and summery, alive with remote anticipation. He was thinking that the young years behind him, hollow and colorful, had been lived in facile and vacillating cynicism upon the recorded emotions of men long dust. And there was something beyond that, he knew now. There was the union of his soul with Gloria's, whose radiant fire and freshness was the living material of which the dead beauty of books was made. From the night into his high-walled room there came, persistently, that evanescent and dissolving sound, something the city was tossing up and calling back again, like a child playing with a ball. In Harlem, the Bronx, Gramercy Park, and along the waterfronts, in little parlors or on pebble-strewn, moon-flooded roofs, a thousand lovers were making this sound, crying little fragments of it into the air. All the city was playing with this sound out there in the blue summer dark, throwing it up and calling it back, promising that, in a little while, life would be beautiful as a story, promising happiness, and by that promise giving it. It gave love hope in its own survival. It could do no more. It was then that a new note separated itself jarringly from the soft crying of the night. It was a noise from an areaway within a hundred feet from his rear window, the noise of a woman's laughter. It began low, incessant, and whining. Some servant made with her fellow, he thought. And then it grew in volume and became hysterical, until it reminded him of a girl he had seen overcome with nervous laughter at a vaudeville performance. Then it sank receded, only to rise again and include words, a coarse joke, some bit of obscure horseplay he could not distinguish. It would break off for a moment and he would just catch the low rumble of a man's voice, then begin again, interminably, at first annoying, then strangely terrible. He shivered and getting up out of bed went to the window. It had reached a high point, tensed and stifled, almost the quality of a scream. Then it ceased and left behind it a silence empty and menacing as the greater silence overhead. Anthony stood by the window a moment longer before he returned to his bed. He found himself upset and shaken. Try as he might to strangle his reaction, some animal quality in that unrestrained laughter had grasped at his imagination and for the first time in four months aroused his old aversion and horror toward all the business of life. The room had grown smothery. He wanted to be out in some cool and bitter breeze, miles above the cities, and to live serene and detached back in the corners of his mind. Life was that sound out there, that ghastly, reiterated female sound. "'Oh, my God!' he cried, drawing in his breath sharply. Burying his face in the pillows, he tried in vain to concentrate upon the details of the next day. Morning In the gray light he found that it was only five o'clock. 
He regretted nervously that he had awakened so early. He would appear fagged at the wedding. He envied Gloria, who could hide her fatigue with careful pigmentation. In his bathroom he contemplated himself in the mirror and saw that he was unusually white. Half a dozen small imperfections stood out against the morning pallor of his complexion. And overnight he had grown the faint stubble of a beard. The general effect, he fancied, was unprepossessing, haggard, half unwell. On his dressing-table were spread a number of articles which he told over carefully with suddenly fumbling fingers. Their tickets to California, the book of traveler's checks, his watch, set to the half-minute, the key to his apartment, which he must not forget to give to Mari, and most important of all, the ring. It was of platinum set around with small emeralds. Gloria had insisted on this. She had always wanted an emerald wedding ring, she said. It was the third present he had given her. First had come the engagement ring, and then a little gold cigarette case. He would be giving her many things now, clothes and jewels and friends and excitement. It seemed absurd that from now on he would pay for all her meals. It was going to cost. He wondered if he had not underestimated for this trip, and if he had not better cash a larger check. The question worried him. Then the breathless impendency of the event swept his mind clear of details. This was the day, unsought, unsuspected six months before, but now breaking in yellow light through his east window, dancing along the carpet as though the sun were smiling at some ancient and reiterated gag of his own. Anthony laughed in a nervous, one-syllable snort. "'By God!' he muttered to himself. "'I'm as good as married!' The Ushers Six young men in Cross Patch's library growing more and more cheery under the influence of Mum's extra dry, set surreptitiously in cold pails by the bookcases. The first young man. By golly! Believe me, in my next book I'm going to do a wedding scene that'll knock em cold. The second young man. Met a debutante the other day, said she thought your book was powerful. As a rule, young girls cry for this primitive business. The third young man. Where's Anthony? The fourth young man. Walking up and down outside, talking to himself. Second young man. Lord, did you see the minister? Most peculiar-looking teeth. Fifth young man. Think they're natural. Funny thing people having gold teeth. Sixth young man. They say they love them. My dentist told me once a woman came to him and insisted on having two of her teeth covered with gold. No reason at all. All right the way they were. Fourth young man. Here you got out a book, Dicky. Congratulations. Dick, stiffly. Thanks. Fourth young man, innocently. What is it? College stories? Dick, more stiffly. No, not college stories. Fourth young man. Pity, hasn't been a good book about Harvard for years. Dick, touchily. Why don't you supply the lack? Third young man. I think I saw a squad of guests turn the drive in a packer just now. Sixth young man. Might open a couple more bottles on the strength of that. Third young man. It was the shock of my life when I heard the old man was going to have a wet wedding. Rabid prohibitionist, you know. Fourth young man. 
snapping his fingers excitedly. By gad! I knew I'd forgotten something! Kept thinking it was my vest! Dick. What was it? Fourth young man. By gad! By gad! Sixth young man. Here, here! Why the tragedy? Second young man. What'd you forget? The way home? Dick maliciously. He forgot the plot for his book of Harvard stories. Fourth young man. No, sir, I forgot the present by George. I forgot to buy old Anthony a present. I kept putting it off and putting it off and, by gad, I've forgotten it. What'll they think? Sixth young man, facetiously. That's probably what's been holding up the wedding. The fourth young man looks nervously at his watch, laughter. Fourth young man. By gad, what an ass I am. Second young man. What'd you make of the bridesmaid who thinks she's Nora Bays? Kept telling me she wished this was a ragtime wedding. Name's Haynes or Hampton. Dick, hurriedly spurring his imagination. Kane, you mean. Muriel Kane. She's a sort of dead of honor, I believe. Once saved Gloria from drowning, or something of the sort. Second young man. I didn't think she could stop that perpetual swaying long enough to swim. Fill up my glass, will you? Old man and I had a long talk about the weather just now. Maury. Who? Old Adam? Second young man. No, the bride's father. He must be with a weather bureau. Dick. He's my uncle, Otis. Otis. Well, it's an honorable profession. Laughter. Sixth young man. Bride your cousin, isn't she? Dick. Yes, Cable, she is. Cable. She certainly is a beauty. Not like you, Dicky. Bet she brings old Anthony to terms. Maury. Why are all grooms given the title of old? I think marriage is an error of youth. Dick. Maury, the professional cynic. Maury. Why, you intellectual faker. Fifth young man. Battle of the highbrows here, Otis. Pick up what crumbs you can. Dick. Faker yourself? What do you know? Maury. What do you know? Lick. Ask me anything, any branch of knowledge. Maury. All right. What's the fundamental principle of biology? Dick. You don't know yourself. Maury. Don't hedge. Dick. Well, natural selection? Maury. Wrong. Dick. I give it up. Maury. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Fifth young man. Take your base. Maury. Ask you another. What's the influence of mice on the clover crop? Laughter. Fourth young man. What's the influence of rats on the decalogue? Maury. Shut up, you saphead. There is a connection. Dick. What is it, then? Maury, pausing a moment in growing disconcertion. Why, let's see. I seem to have forgotten exactly. Something about the bees eating the clover. Fourth young man. And the clover eating the mice. Ha, ha. Maury, frowning. Let me just think a minute. Dick, sitting up suddenly. Listen. A volley of chatter explodes in the adjoining room. The six young men arise, feeling at their neckties. Dick, weightily. We'd better join the firing squad. 
They're going to take the picture, I guess. No, that's afterward. Otis. Cable, you take the ragtime bridesmaid. Fourth young man. I wish to God I'd sent that present. Maury. If you'll give me another minute, I'll think of that about the mice. Otis. I was usher last month for old Charlie McIntyre, and— They move slowly toward the door as the chatter becomes a babble, and the practicing preliminary to the overture issues in long, pious groans from Adam Patch's organ. Anthony There were five hundred eyes boring through the back of his cutaway and the sun glinting on the clergyman's inappropriately bourgeois teeth. With difficulty he restrained a laugh. Gloria was saying something in a clear, proud voice, and he tried to think that the affair was irrevocable, that every second was significant, that his life was being slashed into two periods, and that the face of the world was changing before him. He tried to recapture that ecstatic sensation of ten weeks before. All these emotions eluded him, and he did not even feel the physical nervousness of that very morning. It was all one gigantic aftermath. And those gold teeth! He wondered if the clergyman were married. He wondered, perversely, if a clergyman could perform his own marriage service. But as he took Gloria into his arms he was conscious of a strong reaction. The blood was moving in his veins now. A languorous and pleasant content settled like a weight upon him, bringing responsibility and possession. He was married. Gloria so many, such mingled emotions, that no one of them was separable from the others. She could have wept for her mother, who was crying quietly back there ten feet, and for the loveliness of the June sunlight flooding in at the windows. She was beyond all conscious perceptions. Only a sense, colored with delirious wild excitement, that the ultimately important was happening, and a trust, fierce and passionate, burning in her like a prayer, that in a moment she would be forever and securely safe. Late one night they arrived in Santa Barbara, where the night clerk at the Hotel Lafcadio refused to admit them, on the grounds that they were not married. The clerk thought that Gloria was beautiful. He did not think that anything so beautiful as Gloria could be moral. Con amore that first half-year, the trip west, the long months loiter along the California coast, and the gray house near Greenwich, where they lived until late autumn, made the country dreary. Those days, those places, saw the enraptured hours. The breathless idol of their engagement gave way, first, to the intense romance of the more passionate relationship. The breathless idol left them, fled on to other lovers. They looked around one day, and it was gone how they scarcely knew. Had either of them lost the other in the days of the idol, the love lost would have been ever to the loser that dim desire without fulfillment which stands back of all life. But magic must hurry on, and the lovers remain. The idol passed, bearing with it its extortion of youth. Came a day when Gloria found that other men no longer bored her. Came a day when Anthony discovered that he could sit again late into the evening, talking with Dick of those tremendous abstractions that had once occupied his world. But knowing they had had the best of love, they clung to what remained. Love lingered, 
by way of long conversations at night into those stark hours where the mind thins and sharpens and the borrowings from dreams become the stuff of all life, by way of deep and intimate kindnesses they develop toward each other, by way of their laughing at the same absurdities and thinking the same things noble and the same things sad. It was, first of all, a time of discovery. The things they found in each other were so diverse, so intermixed, and moreover, so sugared with love as to seem at the time not so much discoveries as isolated phenomena, to be allowed for and to be forgotten. Anthony found that he was living with a girl of tremendous nervous tension, and of the most high-handed selfishness. Gloria knew within a month that her husband was an utter coward toward any one of a million phantasms created by his imagination. Her perception was intermittent, for this cowardice sprang out, became almost obscenely evident, then faded and vanished as though it had only been a creation of her own mind. Her reactions to it were not those attributed to her sex. It roused her neither to disgust nor to a premature feeling of motherhood. Herself almost completely without physical fear, she was unable to understand and so she made the most of what she felt to be his fear's redeeming feature, which was that though he was a coward under a shock and a coward under a strain, when his imagination was given play, he had yet a sort of dashing recklessness that moved her on its brief occasions almost to admiration, and a pride that usually steadied him when he thought he was observed. The trait first showed itself in a dozen incidents of little more than nervousness, his warning to a taxi-driver against fast driving in Chicago, his refusal to take her to a certain tough café she had always wished to visit. These, of course, admitted the conventional interpretation, that it was of her he had been thinking. Nevertheless, their cumulative weight disturbed her. But something that occurred in a San Francisco hotel, when they had been married a week, gave the matter certainty. It was after midnight and pitch dark in their room. Gloria was dozing off, and Anthony's even breathing beside her made her suppose that he was asleep, when suddenly she saw him raise himself on his elbow and stare at the window. "'What is it, dearest?' she murmured. "'Nothing.' He had relaxed to his pillow and turned toward her. "'Nothing, my darling wife.' "'Don't say wife. I'm your mistress. Wife's such an ugly word. Your permanent mistress is so much more tangible and desirable. Come into my arms," she added in a rush of tenderness. I can sleep so well, so well with you in my arms. Coming into Gloria's arms had a quite definite meaning. It required that he should slide one arm under her shoulder, lock both arms about her, and arrange himself as nearly as possible as a sort of three-sided crib for her luxurious ease. Anthony, who tossed, whose arms went tinglingly to sleep after half an hour of that position, would wait until she was asleep and roll her gently over to her side of the bed, then, left to his own devices, he would curl himself into his usual knots. Gloria, having attained sentimental comfort, retired into her doze. Five minutes ticked away on Bleakman's travelling clock. Silence lay all about the room over the unfamiliar, impersonal furniture and the half-oppressive ceiling that melted imperceptibly into invisible walls on both sides. 
Then there was suddenly a rattling flutter at the window, staccato and loud upon the hushed, pent air. With a leap Anthony was out of the bed and standing tense beside it. "'Who's there?' he cried in an awful voice. Gloria lay very still, wide awake now, and engrossed not so much in the rattling as in the rigid, breathless figure whose voice had reached from the bedside into that ominous dark. The sound stopped. The room was quiet as before. Then Anthony pouring words in at the telephone. "'Someone just tried to get into the room!' "'There's someone at the window!' His voice was emphatic now, faintly terrified. "'All right, hurry!' He hung up the receiver, stood motionless. There was a rush and commotion at the door, a knocking. Anthony went to open it upon an excited night clerk with three bellboys grouped staring behind him. Between thumb and finger the night clerk held a wet pen with the thread of a weapon. One of the bellboys had seized a telephone directory and was looking at it sheepishly. Simultaneously the group was joined by the hastily summoned house detective, and as one man they surged into the room. Lights sprang on with a click. Gathering a piece of sheet about her, Gloria dove away from sight, shutting her eyes to keep out the horror of this unpremeditated visitation. There was no vestige of an idea in her stricken sensibilities, save that her Anthony was at grievous fault. The night clerk was speaking from the window, his tone half of the servant, half of the teacher reproving a schoolboy. "'Nobody out there,' he declared conclusively. My golly, nobody could be out there. This here's a sheer fall to the street of fifty feet. It was the wind you heard, tugging at the blind." Oh! Then she was sorry for him. She wanted only to comfort him and draw him back tenderly into her arms, to tell them to go away because the thing their presence connotated was odious. Yet she could not raise her head for shame. She heard a broken sentence, apologies conventions of the employee and one unrestrained snicker from a bellboy. "'I've been nervous as the devil all evening,' Anthony was saying. "'Somehow that noise just shook me. I was only about half awake.' "'Sure, I understand,' said the night clerk with comfortable tact. "'Been that way myself.' The door closed. The light snapped out. Anthony crossed the floor quietly and crept into bed. Gloria feigning to be heavy with sleep, gave a quiet little sigh and slipped into his arms. "'What was it, dear?' "'Nothing,' he answered, his voice still shaken. "'I thought there was somebody at the window, so I looked out, but I couldn't see anyone and the noise kept up, so I phoned downstairs. Sorry if I disturbed you, but I'm awfully darn nervous tonight.' Catching the lie, she gave an interior start. He had not gone to the window, nor near the window. He had stood by the bed and then sent in his call of fear. Oh, she said, and then, I'm so sleepy. For an hour they lay awake side by side, Gloria with her eyes shut so tight that blue moons formed and revolved against backgrounds of deepest mauve, Anthony staring blindly into the darkness overhead. After many weeks, it came gradually out into the light, to be laughed and joked at. They made a tradition to fit over it. Whenever that overpowering terror of the night attacked Anthony, 
she would put her arms about him and croon, soft as a song, I'll protect my Anthony. Oh, nobody's ever going to harm my Anthony. He would laugh as though it were a jest they played for their mutual amusement, but to Gloria it was never quite a jest. It was, at first, a keen disappointment. Later it was one of the times when she controlled her temper. The management of Gloria's temper, whether it was aroused by a lack of hot water for her bath or by a skirmish with her husband, became almost the primary duty of Anthony's day. It must be done just so, by this much silence, by that much pressure, by this much yielding, by that much force. It was in her angers with their attendant cruelties that her inordinate egotism chiefly displayed itself. Because she was brave, because she was spoiled, because of her outrageous and commendable independence of judgment, and finally, because of her arrogant consciousness that she had never seen a girl as beautiful as herself, Gloria had developed into a consistent, practicing Nietzschean. This, of course, with overtones of profound sentiment. There was, for example, her stomach. She was used to certain dishes, and she had a strong conviction that she could not possibly eat anything else. There must be a lemonade and a tomato sandwich late in the morning, then a light lunch with a stuffed tomato. Not only did she require food from a selection of a dozen dishes, but in addition this food must be prepared in just a certain way. One of the most annoying half-hours of the first fortnight occurred in Los Angeles, when an unhappy waiter brought her a tomato stuffed with chicken salad instead of celery. "'We always serve it that way, madam,' he quavered to the gray eyes that regarded him wrathfully. Gloria made no answer, but when the waiter had turned discreetly away she banged both fists upon the table until the china and silver rattled. "'Poor Gloria!' laughed Anthony unwittingly. You can't get what you want ever, can you?" "'I can't eat stuff!' she flared up. "'I'll call back the waiter. I don't want you to. He doesn't know anything, the darn fool!' "'Well, it isn't the hotel's fault. Either send it back, forget it, or be a sport and eat it.' "'Shut up!' she said succinctly. "'Why take it out on me?' "'Oh, I'm not!' she wailed but I simply can't eat it!" Anthony subsided helplessly. "'We'll go somewhere else,' he suggested. "'I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm tired of being trotted around to a dozen cafés and not getting one thing fit to eat.' "'When do we go around to a dozen cafés?' "'You'd have to in this town,' insisted Gloria with ready sophistry. Anthony, bewildered, tried another tack. "'Why don't you try to eat it? It can't be as bad as you think.' "'Just because I don't like chicken!' She picked up her fork and began poking contemptuously at the tomato, and Anthony expected her to begin flinging the stuffings in all directions. He was sure that she was approximately as angry as she had ever been. For an instant, he had detected a spark of hate directed as much toward him as toward anyone else, and Gloria Angry was, for the present, unapproachable. Then, surprisingly, he saw that she had tentatively raised the fork to her lips and tasted the chicken salad. Her frown had not abated, and he stared at her anxiously, making no comment and daring scarcely to breathe. 
she tasted another forkful. In another moment she was eating. With difficulty Anthony restrained a chuckle. When at length he spoke, his words had no possible connection with chicken salad. This incident, with variations, ran like a lugubrious fugue through the first year of marriage. Always it left Anthony baffled, irritated, and depressed. But another rough brushing of temperaments, a question of laundry bags, he found even more annoying, as it ended inevitably in a decisive defeat for him. One afternoon in Coronado, where they had made the longest stay of their trip, more than three weeks, Gloria was arraying herself brilliantly for tea. Anthony, who had been downstairs listening to the latest rumor bulletins of war in Europe, entered the room, kissed the back of her powdered neck, and went to his dresser. After a great pulling out and pushing in of drawers, evidently unsatisfactory, he turned around to the unfinished masterpiece. "'Got any handkerchiefs, Gloria?' he asked. Gloria shook her golden head. "'Not a one. I'm using one of yours.' "'The last one, I deduce.' He laughed dryly. "'Is it?' She applied an emphatic, though very delicate, contour to her lips. "'Isn't the laundry back?' "'I don't know.' Anthony hesitated, then, with sudden discernment, opened the closet door. His suspicions were verified. On the hook provided hung the blue bag furnished by the hotel. This was full of his clothes. He had put them there himself. The floor beneath it was littered with an astonishing mass of finery, lingerie, stockings, dresses, nightgowns, and pajamas, most of it scarcely worn, but all of it coming indubitably under the general heading of Gloria's laundry. He stood holding the closet door open. "'Why, Gloria!' "'What?' The lip-line was being erased and corrected according to some mysterious perspective. Not a finger trembled as she manipulated the lipstick, not a glance wavered in his direction. It was a triumph of concentration. "'Haven't you ever sent out the laundry?' "'Is it there?' "'It most certainly is.' "'Well, I guess I haven't, then.' "'Gloria,' began Anthony, sitting down on the bed and trying to catch her mirrored eyes, you're a nice fellow, you are. I've sent it out every time it's been sent since we left New York, and over a week ago you promised you'd do it for a change. All you'd have to do would be to cram your own junk into that bag and ring for the chambermaid. Oh, why fuss about the laundry? exclaimed Gloria petulantly. I'll take care of it. I haven't fussed about it. I just as soon divide the bother with you, but when we run out of handkerchiefs it's darn near time something's done." Anthony considered that he was being extraordinarily logical, but Gloria, unimpressed, put away her cosmetics and casually offered him her back. "'Hook me up,' she suggested. "'Anthony, dearest, I forgot all about it. I meant to, honestly, and I will today. Don't be cross with your sweetheart.' What could Anthony do then but draw her down upon his knee and kiss a shade of color from her lips? "'But I don't mind,' she murmured with a smile, radiant and magnanimous. "'You can kiss all the paint off my lips any time you want.' They went down to tea. They bought some handkerchiefs in a notion store nearby. All was forgotten. But two days later Anthony looked in the closet, 
and saw the bag still hung limp upon its hook, and that the gay and vivid pile on the floor had increased surprisingly in height. "'Gloria!' he cried. "'Oh!' her voice was full of real distress. Despairingly, Anthony went to the phone and called the chambermaid. "'It seems to me,' he said impatiently, "'that you expect me to be some sort of French valet to you.' Gloria laughed, so infectiously that Anthony was unwise enough to smile. Unfortunate man! In some intangible manner his smile made her mistress of the situation. With an air of injured righteousness she went emphatically to the closet and began pushing her laundry violently into the bag. Anthony watched her, ashamed of himself. "'There,' she said, implying that her fingers had been worked to the bone by a brutal taskmaster. He considered, nevertheless, that he had given her an object lesson and that the matter was closed, but on the contrary it was merely beginning. Laundry pile followed laundry pile at long intervals. Darth of handkerchief followed Darth of handkerchief, at short ones. Not to mention Darth of sock, of shirt, of everything. And Anthony found at length that either he must send it out himself, or go through the increasingly unpleasant ordeal of a verbal battle with Gloria. End of Book Two, Chapter One, Part Two